Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Farouk, and I'm here with my co-host. Nick, did, did you shave? What? That's not Nick. That's not Jen. It's not even Mark. It's the one and only Jason Bay. Jason, would you please tell the audience, why have you graced us with your presence, and why should people listen today? Well, I was going to say, it's not only did Nick shave, he grew about what, six inches? But how much taller I am than Nick? <laughs> hey, hey, watch it. <laughs> We're the same height. <laughs> you know, a couple skin tones darker. No, dude, I'm super excited. We did a killer webinar a couple weeks ago. We had over 4,000 people sign up. I mean, it was over 1,000 people in live attendance. And we talked sequencing. We showed an email campaign that has 15 plus percent reply rates. And we had so many questions. There were like 100 plus questions. And what I'm excited to do is there's some really good questions that we're going to answer for the audience today. That's right, folks. So this is a special edition episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club, where we are going to go through the major categories of questions. We'll try to get through as many of the 100 questions as we can, but they will fall in these buckets. Bucket number one is where should I spend my time? Bucket number two is what should I say in a sequence? Bucket number three is what channels should I use in a sequence? Bucket number four is open rates, connect rates, and spam. And then there's a last bucket of anything that is left. And so if you enjoy what you heard here, go check out the link to the live webinar that we did a couple weeks down in the show notes. But without further ado, a three, two, one, let's ride. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. Today's show is sponsored by Calendly. If you're interested in accelerating your sales cycle, improving your prospects' experience, and booking more demos, there's one scheduling automation platform on the market that does all three. Calendly offers team-based scheduling, solutions and integrations for every department, and lead routing to instantly book qualified meetings from your website and match known leads to reps based on real-time Salesforce assignment. I find it really helpful when I have to book meetings with multiple people on my side so that I don't have to coordinate everyone's calendars. Get started today by checking out the show notes or Calendly.com. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Woodpecker. When you're sending a sales email, you generally want to avoid putting punctuation in the subject line. If you've got an exclamation point, it makes it seem like you're shouting at them. Look at this amazing offer. And a question mark just smells salesy. So avoid punctuation. Now, if you want to steal my full sales cadence from my friends at Woodpecker, there's a link in the show notes for you to go get it and try it for free. Here's my secret to being a sales superhuman. It's auto reminders for everything. If I expect any reply from a prospect, I press command H and superhuman pops it right back into my inbox if I don't get a reply in two days. That means if you handle an objection, if you suggest times for a meeting, or if you ask for cuts back on red lines, always create a two day reminder task and assume they will not reply. So if you wanna follow up on time every time, you can get a free month of superhuman by checking it out in the show notes. All right, Jason, so let's start with category one. Where should I spend my time when it comes to doing an outbound sequence? That brings up topics like how should I think about tiering, prioritization, low-hanging fruit. Let's rattle off some of the highlights from the show we did a couple weeks ago, and let's answer some of these questions. Yeah, I think what's good here and what reps tend to miss is how to put the sequence, the tool to work for you. One of the best lessons I've been taught in sales is you don't want your sales 
pipeline to look like a funnel. You want it to look like a martini glass. So in other words, you want to pick and identify and cherry pick the best opportunities. And that's where you want to invest most of your, we'll call it quote unquote, manual effort. So tiering, I think, is really like deciding where to spend your manual effort. That's the first thing that you want to do. And you can do this in a lot of different ways. The kind of 100 level version of this is you say, hey, there's my tier one accounts that are the industry that is going to be most popping for me in terms of where I'm going to win my most business. So I'm going to spend a disproportionate amount of effort on those tier ones. You could also do this based on persona as well. So you could say, for me, it's those VPs of sales and those sales executives. I'm going to over-index on where I spend my effort there. And then the advanced version of that would be you maybe have nine different campaigns or sequences where it's like it's based on industry vertical, it's based on persona, it's based on the quality of the contact data. So it gets really complicated really quick. But the principle here is let's just think about where we want to spend our time based on how I would grade and put a likelihood, a probability of success on this account or this persona. That's right. The way I think about how your effort can go up disproportionately yeah. are really in two areas. Number one is how many different channels am I going to use? Number two, I start to think about how much effort am I putting into personalization? And so for me personally, what that oftentimes looked like was the C tier accounts were getting mostly generic emails. My second bucket, my Bs, were oftentimes going to get bucket level tailoring and some amount of cold calls and social touches. But each individual is not getting personalized messaging. And then the A tiers, all of the key people on the account are going to be getting personalized messaging and we're using multi-channels and whatnot. And so, Jason, I think we're talking both around this concept of the higher level or the more important the person, that might mean the more effort you put in too. And so there are two questions that I want to throw your way. Number one, the first question was, can you describe below or above the line? And then number two, related to that, how does your outreach strategy differ for an executive audience versus someone who might be below the line? So above and below the line is from the late, sadly, Skip Miller, who passed recently. His book, Selling Above and Below the Line, great read, very short read. But above the line would be, hey, these are the executives at the company that are more strategic in how they think. They're not thinking about, did our team hit our goal this week? It's, are we going to hit our goal this quarter? What's the year looking like? What's the two or three year plan? Below the line, these folks are more tactical in nature. These people care a lot about things that are very specific to their job. And if we're using sales again, that and I'm an SDR manager, that might be like outbound activity. Are we hitting our meeting metrics, et cetera? those types of things. So that segues perfectly into the next question around how does our strategy differ for an exec audience? I don't know about you. Do you remember the first time you had to sell to an executive? There's this one meeting that sticks out to me. His name was also Jason. I ran with a VP of sales. It was the first VP of sales I sold to that was at a big company. I want to say big, 500 plus employees. It wasn't a VP of sales that was really a sales manager with a VP title. And I was talking to him about the outbound stuff and I was getting really tactical because that's what all my prospects love to see, right? Let's see what an example playbook looks like, email messaging, here's how we did this. And he's just like, dude, what do you do? I don't really understand. He's like, what organizations have you helped? What are the results been? And I was like, oh, wow. This was my own journey of learning that, hey, this person, just because they have sales in their title or just because someone has HR or marketing or whatever, doesn't mean they care about the tactical things that your solution helps with. They care a lot about the outcomes. They care way more about social proof too. 
social proof in the enterprise game, especially is everything. Who have you done this for and what were the results? So the strategy again is I'm going to talk high level outcomes typically and business problems with an exec. For someone that's below the line, I'm going to talk a lot about day-to-day pain and how to make their life and their team's life easier. Bingo. And so to make this real using my alma mater pave as an example, our above the line buyer would oftentimes be a chief people officer or chief HR officer. Someone who would be at the line would oftentimes be a director or a head of people operations or a director or a head of compensation. And then someone below the line might be a compensation analyst or an HRIS systems analyst, someone who's managing all of the systems or doing the grunt of the grunt work. So the messaging that would go below the line would be really focused on how painful it is to plan comp and spreadsheets. The messaging that would happen at the line would talk about how planning compensation and spreadsheets oftentimes leads to compensation mistakes. And then for the above the line folks, for the chief people officer or the chief HR officer, oftentimes we're talking about things like, hey, we're able to reduce compensation mistakes, which leads to less retention, which leads to rewarding the right types of people. But what we try to do is give enough about the tactical problem so that it feels real to the executive. So we take the tactical piece that we used at the line, but we really pull it up to the outcome above the line. Love it. And I know we're about to talk about messaging next. It doesn't matter what your sequence strategy is or how many times you reach out to someone or what strategy that you use from a channel perspective if the message doesn't resonate. This is the number one problem I see with all of the organizations and reps that I work with. They're just not putting the right message in front of the person. Like I think email deliverability, yeah, it's important, but it's extremely overrated. People don't respond to your email because it sucks. The messaging sucks. It's not because of your deliverability. Jason, before we go into some of the questions, what were some of the high points around touch to touch? How does the messaging throughout an outbound sequence change and all of that? In other words, what should I be saying throughout this 30-day drip? So at the core of the message, it's I have a persona. So it needs to be persona-based. I think that needs to be stated because there's so many people sending out the same sequence across different department roles and then also different levels of seniority. So I want to pick one persona. Each persona, they'll typically have two or three areas that your product or solution helps with. I don't want to reverse engineer the priorities. So what is the typical priority? Like if we use an example, I work with a company that sells into contact center executives. So if I have six emails in my sequence, those first three emails are going to hit that first priority. I'm going to use a longer form, more personalized email that talks about typically when we speak with contact center leaders, their top priority is reducing cost to serve. And there's a big goal to reduce call center volume, right? That's kind of the language that we would riff on. And email number three, the goal of those is to just point the person back to the first email. You got to be thinking about the user experience for the prospect. So when I send not just a long email, but multiple long emails that are very kind of ambiguous in terms of what the ask is, you're requiring the person to do way too much work. So we want to reduce friction. A really easy way to do that is to write a really nice, tight first email, and you can bump it with a case study or helpful piece of content that kind of reinforces. It provides that social proof. And then I'm a really big fan of that any thoughts bump that so many people seem to hate, but I'm like, dude, it just works. It's typically the highest positive reply rate email in your sequence. And then I'm going to start a new email chain. That second set of emails is going to be, and this is where we all had pretty much the same consensus on this. We're going to have one like focal point of the message. 
for this first three emails, second priority or problem that we solve in that second set of emails. So we're going to do the same thing. We're going to bump it again. Bingo. And so Jason just handled three of the questions there. So the three questions were, how many emails do you thread versus have new subject lines? We all pretty much had one lead email, two follow-ups, a new lead email, new subject line, two more follow-ups, and then perhaps one more batch. Jason, I'm curious, this one kills me when I see it. It's one question that says, would you include a meeting link in your first email or an offer to book time on your Calendly anywhere in your cold emails? It depends on the industry. I would say 99% of the time, this is probably a bad move. And the reason for that is it's assumptive and it feels really lazy. One of the biggest things in sales in general outbound is we're trying to create reciprocity. People are more inclined to do things for us if we show that we're doing things for them. And the way that that works in sales is putting in the upfront effort to show that you're putting in work to customize, tailor, be intentional, et cetera. What we want to return from the prospect is to take action and schedule a meeting. Dropping a meeting link, it doesn't really engage that reciprocity muscle very much for the prospect. So I have not seen a single campaign of any client where that first email performs well with a meeting link. I don't have an issue with you having it in your email signature, but to be that assumptive is just crazy. The last thing I'm going to do is get a random email from a stranger and then click on their meeting link and then book a time to speak with them. So when I say rare exception, I think there's probably this works in SMB. If you're a really, really well-known company and you can get right to the top and you have just so much social proof over the prospect, I could see that working. But this definitely doesn't work in a mid-market or enterprise context for sure. Yeah, I find that. You want to make it as easy as possible to say yes to one thing when you're doing outbound. And you're asking them to make multiple decisions when you put your Calendly link in there. You're not just asking for interest. You're asking, do you want to take time? And do you want to take time to meet with me at some certain time and open up your calendar? And it's hard enough to get someone to say like, sure, I'm interested in your thing. It's even harder to get people to book. I want to take this in a slightly different direction, Jason, which is, we talked a lot about, okay, send your first emails, tailor your first emails. And someone was asking, why is it always email first or LinkedIn connection first, right? Should I perhaps try cold calling first? How do you think about that? This is mostly personal preference. There's no data from any of the skills engagement providers that shows that one way or the other works better. Tom in the webinar shared, he just admitted, hey, my confidence is boosted when they've gotten an email. And you know what? He probably doesn't even look to see if they open the email or not. He's probably like, oh, yeah, they got an email. They got a LinkedIn connection request. It's quote unquote warmed up. That's just not the case. I mean, how many reps are taught to ask, did you get my email or have you heard of us before? And even if they've gotten the email prospects like no. So it's personal preference. I think there is an advantage to calling first. And the point I made in the webinar is, and I know everyone's done this. How many times have you spent writing a custom tailored personal email only to have it bounce because the email address is incorrect <laughs> and you just go wasted all of this time? It's going to happen one out of every 10 emails that you send. So do your research, all that kind of stuff and send the email out later. That would be my yeah. preference if I was trying to get after it. There's a slight tangent on this one, which is a question that comes up frequently on LinkedIn and other places. The other day I made a post and people got really, really mad. When I was oh, talking yes. about, <laughs> you probably saw this, people got so mad when I was ripping on, don't over-research your cold calls. You should be able to make 40 cold calls in an hour. 
unless your connect rate is through the roof. Yeah. And people were so mad. They're like, no, I want to have quality of conversations. And I think a similar paradigm goes for, I should spend a lot of time researching accounts or tailoring emails. How much time does it take you to write a good quality tailored email to an A or a B tier account? A couple comments on that. I think that Dude, if I'm calling the CEO of like a Fortune 1000 company because I'm trying to get lucky with someone in the C-suite, you might want to be prepared for that call. All of the other people, it's not really that big of a deal. So to answer your question, though, I want to get 80% of the way there with some sort of template. I should already have some snippets and copy paste language that I can use in an email. So the tailoring part of the email, I mean, if these are my A priorities, probably five to 10 minutes for that email if I have to do the research still. That would be an enterprise type of engagement. And do I know generally what triggers I'm looking for? For me, it's, are they hiring? Is there a sales methodology I could pick out of that hiring post? Did they recently launch new products? Is there any kind of merger acquisition type of thing? And if I can't find anything there, is there something on the person's LinkedIn profile? That's usually it. I can find that stuff pretty quickly and be able to tailor an email and kind of adjust it. You know, Salesloft released a bunch of data around the 10%, 20% ish of the email needs to be customized. That's the approach that I've always used. It's that first line I'm going to kind of leave open to find four or five common triggers. And the rest of the emails, for the most part, are going to be good to go. Agreed. Let's take this in the third of four categories, which is what channels should I be using? So we talked a little bit about calls. But there are a couple different questions as it pertains to outside of emails. What else should I be doing? This one, I've, <laughs> I've heard some hot takes on it. What's your take on texting? I'm pretty sure I'm not a lawyer. Don't quote me on this, that you are not supposed to cold text a prospect unless you give them a way to opt out or you have to be really clear about the unsubscribe language if you're going to do like bulk texting and stuff like that. And I come from call centers is sort of my background. And that was like a big no, no. You can't do stuff like that. The other thing is, it just really pisses people off when you text them, dude, and they don't have a relationship with you. So don't text. You don't need to text to get the meeting. And for the amount of times that it works, I can tell you there's probably 20, 25 times where you do it and someone permanently blocks your number. You're never going to get a hold of them again. So texting is safe for, have I had some sort of interaction or communication? Then texting is a wonderful tool. One of the hacks that I recommend in a cold call, especially when you get a meeting, is text confirmation. None of this like email confirmation stuff say, hey, while I got you, this is your cell phone number, right, Armand? I'm going to send you a text the day before just to confirm our meeting, make sure you're good to go. And I have a couple other stuff I'll email you on the way by the time the meeting starts. That's the money. All right. So Jason, let's assume that we're not going to be doing cold texting. We might be using texting for me and confirmations. There were a couple of people in the chat who actually asked hey, is cold calling really worth it? Should I be doing it all? Should I be doing it only on my A-tier accounts? Is cold calling actually worth the time for you? Yeah, I mean, this has been a debate for as long as people have been making calls on the phone, this has been a debate. The thing I find really funny in this question, though, it says, I don't even cold call people I know. I text first. It's by definition not a cold call if it's someone that you know. <laughs> so... Dude, I think there's a really important bias here to point out. The bias, we do this all the time in sales and in business especially, is we ask, would this work on me? And you know what? You're not your buyer. As a rep, you are not that executive. And if you're selling into a different persona, you've never even done that person's job before. So take your own personal opinion out of it and just objectively look at the data. What the data tells us right now is that 
really the question is not does cold calling work? It's is it worth my time with how hard it is to get someone to pick up the phone right now? Three to five percent pickup rate. You mentioned you should be able to make 40 calls in an hour. That's cooking. That's if you're like not messing around. And one out of 40, what's that? It's two and a half percent. That's about how many calls it would take to have a conversation or two for most people. So if you're either not willing to put in that level of effort or use something like hot numbers, like what Orem's got right now, you know, the concept of verifying phone numbers, their solution does that automatically. So they have 100 million plus calls that have been made through the dialer. And if your list coincides with any of the numbers that are dialed in there, it just automatically prioritizes numbers that have higher pickup rates. So you'll have like a 20% pickup rate versus five. It's pretty sick. I'd say use a tool like that and then a dialer as well. Those make the activity worth more your while. If you're not going to do those things and you're an account executive, you got to be really diligent about the people that you're calling. And then the other thing I would recommend is following the engagement. So call people that show a willingness to engage with you. They open up your email. I think another underrated thing to do is call people when they reply to your email. When someone says, yeah, sure, let's meet, try calling them first. Set the meeting over the phone. When someone says, ah, I don't know if I'm really interested, call them. If someone says, yeah, send over some more information, I'll forward it over, call them, pick up the phone and call them. Like stuff happens over the phone. It's still the number one channel for prospecting to make things happen and to make it happen quickly. So yes, if you don't believe that cold calling is worth it, it's not going to be worth it. But if you use it effectively and use some of the tools and the approaches that we've talked about, it's effective, man. It's one of the most effective tools that you can use to set meetings. I agree with everything you said, so I'm not even going to plus one it. And so we're on section four, open rates, connect rates, and spam. And there were a lot of these ones. So first, I think it would be helpful to just clear the air on the new spam regulations, restrictions that are being put out by Google, Yahoo, whoever else it was. I believe the announcement came out a couple months ago and Google, Yahoo, and other email providers were saying, hey, if some extremely small percentage of your emails get marked as spam, then your domain will be blacklisted. And everyone in sales was freaking out. And to my knowledge, please, this is not legal advice. Verify with your lawyers, your privacy counsel, yada, yada, yada. Please don't sue me. I don't want to be poor. To my knowledge, I believe that they have now adjusted that language and adjusted that language such that it's only when you're emailing personal domains, not business domains. So a lot of B2B prospecting is not necessarily applicable here. Is that congruent with your understanding? Yeah. I don't know if you've noticed in my personal inbox, I've noticed way less spam, which is kind of funny. But yeah, people were freaking out about it. There's literally nothing you need to do different based on the regulations. But I feel like we're heading into very, very soon in the near future where stuff like this is going to happen more often, where it's going to be harder to do things in a way that's not one-to-one. And I have a really hard take on salespeople think way too much like marketers right now. I just don't think that's a good lesson. You don't need to think like a marketer. Marketers think one-to-many. That's not good in sales. Sales is one-to-one. It's tailored conversations. So you need to build this muscle via email, via phone. You need to be able to tailor what you're sending and you need to find a way to do it in a way that's productive too, where you can maintain volume. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's a little bit scary is, so I was messing around this tool called Clay the other day, and it essentially allows you to scrape any piece of information about someone. And so for example, you can 
pull down their last three LinkedIn jobs, how long they've been at their current job. You can pull their phone number and it'll say, if I can't find it at the first provider, I'll get it from the second, the third, the fourth. And then you can start to use ChatGPT to write emails off of that information. So you can say like, if job changed in the last six months, then say congrats on the job change or say something about that. If not, use the most recent fundraising round. If not, use this. And a lot of times the SDR function is really a massive if this then that equation. And I imagine it being really hard to differentiate outside of that, especially if someone pretty smart is manning the machine and knows all the prospecting triggers and has the templates. So when you think about differentiating from pseudo tailoring and a lot of that noise that may come from large scale AI or marketing automations, are there things that we can do as sellers other than pick up the phone, send a video, things like that, that allow us to come off as more human? First hot take on what you said. I think that this stuff is going to make our lives way harder, actually. So I think the clays and all of this stuff of the world, like think about if you started getting 20 more calls on your cell phone every day and they were hyper contextualized, it was a freaking robot that was really contextual. It sounded real, all this other stuff. It doesn't make a difference because you're getting more volume in a place that you don't want to get more volume. It's going to make you more likely to ignore people. So I see the volume dramatically going up. It doesn't matter if it's quality volume or not. The volume is the problem. Anyways, so in terms of automation, all of this stuff like humanizing yourself, I'll give you a really small example of something. One of the best performing sequences that I typically see, they have typos in them and they're not worded perfectly. And something about it just looks human to me. Yeah. And something about it looks human to the prospect too, because it's just same with cold calling. Like one of my best clients, Lindsay, she did all of the stuff you're not supposed to do on a cold call. Hey, Armand, how's your day going? We're taught not to ask some a prospect how their day is going. And I tell you what, she never got hung up on. She just crushed it over the phones. And I think looking for a way to have a conversation just like we're having right now, where it just feels more organic and doesn't feel like such a formulaic pitch, just like being more off the cuff and conversational. And for lack of a better way of saying it, being human, I can't quite wrap my head around like what to call that necessarily outside of be more human. I can't tell you how many people hop on discovery and demo calls where it's just so canned and pitched. I'm like, what are you doing, dude? Yeah. You want to be purposely imperfect in some ways where sometimes I find, you know, you're trained to not have any filler words or anything like that. And sometimes like an um or a groan here and there is okay. And I remember this is a little bit of a hack that I hope people won't abuse, but I would send a first email and if I had a second degree connection with someone, I would immediately send a follow-up email after the first one if I forgot. And I would be like, oh, by the way, I noticed we both know Jason. Small world. And it was the fact that I like forgot something and bubbled up the first email immediately with a piece of tailoring that I clearly found as a human made it feel much more human. And the reply rates were pretty good whenever I quote unquote made that mistake. It's a good move. One last point on this is think about President Obama as one of the greatest speakers of all time. Dude, listen to his speeches. He says a lot of ums and he doesn't sound overly canned and rehearsed, even though, you know, he prepared a ton for that. It's no different than what stand up comedians and actors and actresses do. They're incredibly rehearsed, but it's just like they're in the moment and they're feeling what they're saying. That comes through practice. 
And none of what we talked about today, none of this stuff works if you can't find a way to really inject that into your calls and your emails and your sales calls and just inject you and your personality into it. That's the future is getting back to the basics. That's the future right there. Look at that. Well, Jason, no better way to end than on the future of sequences from the one and only President Bay. You heard it yourself here, folks. <laughs> Jason, this is a blast. We did have one final question, and we're going to kick that to the recap. So everyone hang on for a 60-second rapid-fire round where we will rattle off four ways to not get caught by the spam filters. Cheers, folks. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90-minute masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. Obsessive checking of your inbox is a total waste of time and brain power. Instead, commit to checking your inbox and responding to email at set times throughout the day. I'm a fan of Boomerang's pause inbox function to keep myself from getting distracted by my inbox. Now, we documented our best templates and tools to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang, and you can get that for free at the link in the show notes. This actionable competitive tactic from Clue is the trap question. Steer discovery toward the winning zone. If we're competing with a podcast that has no newsletter or webinar series, we might ask a trap question like, how do you figure out if those podcast listeners are making their way to your mailing list? And when you're in a head-to-head, there's no better way to prepare for your next competitive battle than with our trap questions and battle card templates from our friends at Clue. The link's in the show notes. This actionable tactic on selling to power is sponsored by SalesLoft. Don't start from zero when a champion introduces you to power. Explain the three to four priorities you learn from the champion, but then ask them to validate what's really important to them or what we miss. And we partnered with SalesLoft to give you a whole bunch of talk tracks on selling to power. The link is in the show notes. Alrighty, Jason. So instead of our traditional recap, there was one open question. How can I prevent myself from getting flagged as spam? I think one of the things is if you can avoid as many links as possible in that first email, so no hyperlinking to a case study, none of that kind of stuff, and try to remove most of the links except for your website and your email signature. Number two for me would be, I'm a big fan of batching, so I will research 25 accounts, I'll write all the emails for 25 accounts, but the actual delivery of the emails, be really careful, especially in enterprise, if you blast Honeywell with 20 emails all at once, their company level tracking will oftentimes flag you as spam. And so I always recommend cascading your emails and timing them at least 15 minutes an hour apart in batches. The other one would be, you're supposed to give the prospect a way to opt out when you send cold outreach to them. It doesn't always have to be a link, first off. The second thing is, don't put the word unsubscribe in there. That's a filter that a lot of these tools look for to put spam or into promotions and updates folder. Just say something like, don't want to receive these emails anymore, question mark, versus unsubscribe here. And then lastly, number four, this one is one that you can use as a preventative measure. Woodpecker happens to be a sponsor, but warm up your inbox. So before you go and start blasting 300 emails, definitely get an inbox warmer that 
allows you to send emails. It'll automatically have people reply to those emails just because that builds your email reputation. This is especially important at the early stages. So go warm up your inbox. Alrighty, folks. Well, uh, Jason, that is the end of this. How can people find out more about you? You can find me at outboundsquad.com. So we do uh, sales training, coaching, advising, that sort of stuff for both reps and sales leaders, not only on outbound, but also discovery, demos, multi-threading negotiations, like really closing the deal and up-leveling the conversation that you have with the prospects. So you're not just another rep running a shitty sales call and putting the prospect through this grind that they just don't want to go through. Outboundsquad.com is the best place to find us. So go check out Outbound Squad, folks. Jason is always a great friend of the show, does amazing things. And if you liked what you heard here, I would go check out the webinar that we did, uh, Jason, myself, and Tom Alemo a couple weeks ago. The link to that is in the show notes and one of Jason's sequences, actually, that he uses in practice. So if you want to see an action, go do that. And everyone hang on for the next episode of 30 MPC soon. Cheers, folks. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90-Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. Obsessive checking of your inbox is a total waste of time and brain power. Instead, commit to checking your inbox and responding to email at set times throughout the day. I'm a fan of Boomerang's pause inbox function to keep myself from getting distracted by my inbox. Now, we documented our best templates and tools to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang, and you can get that for free at the link in the show notes.